0: Well, I am going to ask you to open your Bibles, as I have the topic of contentment lost. uh, So turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to give you greetings from your brothers and sisters on the other coast. It's kind of fun to get out here. I don't get out to the West Coast all that often, but it's a joy to be here. And uh, I give you greetings from your brothers and sisters at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. You probably didn't know there was a Second Presbyterian Church. You might not have known there was a Greenville, South Carolina, but we'll be spending eternity together, so it's good to get to know each other. And I'm very honored to be here. I'm going to read just verses 1 to 6, but we're really going to cover uh, this crucially important chapter, Genesis chapter 3. Listen now to God's holy But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. May he write its truth on our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, for this is not a dead book. It was written long ago, and yet he who wrote it lives. And we know that the Spirit speaks to the church through the word, so speak to the church through the word tonight, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our conference this weekend is about contentment. And I was talking to one of the ministers on my staff. He asked what the topic's about. I I said it's about contentment. He said, no, you usually do theology conferences. This seems to be a a more practical conference. My friends, a, a conference on contentment is very much a theology conference. Because it is all about God. It is all about you and me. It's about sin. It's about unbelief. It's about our knowledge of God and particularly our satisfaction in God and the pull of the world that always wants us to worship a false God and to take our eyes off the true God. That's what we're inevitably going to be talking about this weekend. And so actually it is a terrific venue for a study of theology. We had a question and answer today with a group of pastors, a wonderful time. And and so much of what we were talking about amounted to Uh, contentment, uh, one's significance, one's ability to handle the the challenges of life and ministry. It connects with contentment. It it, it therefore is particularly a valuable lens, and no doubt uh, this is what Ryan was thinking about and his staff when they put this together, by which we will take a look at how the gospel is designed to shape us, to shape our minds and our thoughts and our lives, radically reshaping us So that we delight in Him. Well, since I have the opening address, I thought I should probably define what contentment is. And I'm going to plug right now what I think is the greatest book ever written outside of the Bible on contentment. I asked Ryan if he had lots of copies. He said they did, so run out and get them because they will be gone shortly afterwards. And this is the 17th century Puritan book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, Banner of Truth which is one of the main publishers of the Puritans. It's one of the, it was one of the first Puritan paperbacks. The whole series is spectacular. But the rare jewel of Christian contentment, the whole book is an exposition of Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Now, that's a very significant statement. Because the apostle is saying that contentment has to be learned. Paul says, I have learned how to be content. And so it must be learned, but it also can be learned. Uh, Paul there, by the way, was, he was defending himself against charges that his ministry was driven by greed. He said it was contentment, learning contentment that allowed him not to use people, but rather to minister to them and to be an authentic servant of Christ. It's one way of seeing how important our topic is. Now, Burroughs points out that in that verse when Paul says, I have learned to be content, that the Greek word actually is used primarily of God. The word means strictly to be self-satisfied or to be self-sufficient. And of course, that really is only true, strictly speaking, of God. God is full of satisfaction in and of himself. He needs nothing outside of himself because of the glory of his person. And yet here is one of those attributes of God that is wonderfully communicable. He may take his contentment and he may give it to us. And so for us, contentment is a satisfaction in him and in the fullness of God in all of our circumstances. Here's Burroughs' actual definition. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition of every circumstance. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to, but more than that, delights in God, God's wise and fatherly disposition of our every condition, Now notice there that contentment is something far more than merely bearing with the circumstances we have. It is a delighting in God in all of our circumstances. We do not delight in all of our circumstances, but we are to be able to delight in God in all of our circumstances, and that is Christian contentment. Jerry Bridges says this, the contented person experiences the sufficiency of God's provision for his needs... And the sufficiency of his grace for every circumstance. God's provision for our needs and provision of grace for our lacks. That's why Paul could say godliness with contentment is great gain. The godly person has found what the greedy or envious or discontented person is always searching for but never finds. He has found in God satisfaction and rest in his soul. Now, as soon as we start giving that kind of definition, I think it's obvious that it's is not something that we are always experiencing, to put it mildly. That it is, if Paul had to learn to be content, it shouldn't shame us that many of us, and all of us really, are struggling to attain to what has been described. And when we turn to Genesis 3, we are particularly not surprised because we see there that discontentment is very highly correlated with the very origin of sin. And since we are still wrestling with the sinful condition, it is no surprise that we struggle to be contented. Now look at Genesis 3. It records Satan's assault on God's creation. And it says something... That when Satan attacks God, he wants to get at God through the creation, and he's going to get at the pinnacle of the creation, namely man. Let me say right now, let me give a plug. I never tire of plugging Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 on it. We need the doctrine of creation. We need the opening chapters of the Bible. There are ties to everything else in the Bible that go back here. And if we unloose it here, we're going to have strands that unweave the whole of our our Christianity. And particularly here, we see so many signs of the dignity of the human race. Now, if there's one reason why we should not capitulate to secularist views that would deny the biblical doctrine of creation is because otherwise there's no way for us to look at the worst sinner and the most grievous person and say you were made with a fundamental dignity. And you have an inherent value because you're made in the image of God. And God took his hands when he formed Adam and it was a face-to-face creation and he breathed the spirit of life and that's you. And you're not trash. You're you're man. You're woman in the image of God. And frankly, it is a compliment that Satan goes after us. He also goes after the marriage relationship as well. Uh, And uh, Satan is going to attack God in his craftiness by means of uh, the man and woman in the garden. Now, we are told that the serpent was crafty. And then he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now you may notice, if you know the story at all, that this is already a subtle deception. Did God say you can't eat any of the trees from the trees in the garden? No, no. God had said that you can eat of all of them except one. That's what what Eve says. She comes back and says, No, no, that's not what he said. But, But Satan is trying to beguile her and to deceive her. God had. Bestowed upon Adam and Eve and upon our race this lavish generosity, but Satan wants to produce discontentment. So he's going to reframe in a false way. So God says, So so God's miserly rather than generous and filled with goodness and grace. And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree. That is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verses 2 and 3, she's referring to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, seven sixteen and 17, God forbade that. We could spend all night just unpacking that. But, but at a minimum we would say that God was demanding that Adam and Eve, the creatures, acknowledge his lordship as creator. All their blessings were to come out of the, out of the, the Lord-people relationship, the covenant relationship that's, in, that's part of the way that God made things. And they, the, knowledge of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they did not touch, was a symbol of their obedience to the command and the word of God. But look at what Satan says in verses 4 and 5. Uh, Eve says, only that one tree... God said, on the day that we eat of it, we will surely die. And Satan says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the point I want to make is not merely that he's deceiving her and he's lying her, but the, the point of his attack and his deception is to breed in her discontentment. He wants her out of all the generosity, all the beauty of uh, Really, it's it, staggering to the mind. What, what would the pristine, unfallen garden be like? And the, just the, the sheer beauty of it must have been spectacular. But isn't this what Satan wants to do with you and me? Out of all the great things God's given, it's just the beauty of the natural order, the way He's blessed our lives. But it's the one thing we can't have that He wants to dominate our thinking. And He wants her to focus, and He gets her to focus on the one thing. And then, to, then to, He misconstrues it as malice and deception on God's part. Notice how discontentment is joined together here at the very origin of sin coming into the human race. He wants us to lead us away from God's blessing and from our servant to him. While his success is shown in verse 6, Eve began looking at the forbidden tree and she started coveting it The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise." That's what Satan wants us to do. That's how sin operates. Getting us to look at it and to think about doing it. And wow, you know, it is very attractive. It would be very pleasurable. And suddenly it seems that God is not loving us. God's hindering us. And we want, we have all these great, wonderful gifts and blessings. And we want the one thing that will destroy us. This is the deception of Satan. And before long, Adam and Eve together have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have transgressed the covenant of works, and they have fallen under the condemnation of sin. Now, there's two things I really want to highlight in just those verses as we've gone so far. First of all is how significant our topic is. I've been saying that, but I want to make it clear. The significance of the issue of contentment versus discontentment and covetousness. Jerry Bridges writes, discontentment... Is one of the most satanic of all sins, and to indulge in it is to rebel against God as Satan did. Isn't that why we sin? Because we reject his good and wise provision for us. We we, we rebel against him, we resent his law and his commands, and we sin. Notice the significance of discontentment in sin. But secondly, notice that discontentment flourishes when there is confusion about or ignorance of God. Discontentment flourishes where there is confusion about God and where there's ignorance of God. He's trying to confuse Eve about God's attributes, about his motives, about his commands. Why? To bring her under his power so that she'll look upon what is forbidden, so she'll fall into sin. And sure enough, as soon as she's thought about, see, she forgot about the glory of God. I mean, it's really remarkable that after, we don't, by the way, we're not told how long into, the, into the, their lives, as it were, this episode took place. But surely, there, I think the context shows they had experience of walking and talking with the Lord God. By the way, this is certainly the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. And they're walking with him in the pristine, unfallen garden. And it's astonishing What does it say about us? How easy it is to get her to forget the glory and the goodness and the wonder and the majesty of God. And this is what happens in our lives. We forget about the wonderful God that has been revealed to us and who we know And that is how she became discontented and sins. Now, I think Adam's particularly interesting. Uh, One of the distinguishing characteristics of the fruit, by the way, I always think of apple. You know, the Bible never says it's an apple, but it's just in our heads from all the artwork, I think. And uh, the distinguishing characteristic of the forbidden fruit, as it were, which was not sex, by the way. The forbidden fruit was the this, this sacramental symbol of obedience, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the distinguishing characteristic, when Adam eats of it, is teeth marks, teeth marks that conform to his bride, the lovely Eve, our first mother. And Adam, it seems, self-consciously chooses the gift over the giver. This is what Satan desires. God had given Eve to Adam, and Adam entered into sin with her rather than being faithful to God. In both of their cases, the deception of sin led them into discontentment with God and his will. Let me quote Jerry Bridges again. He says, The very first temptation in the history of mankind was the temptation to discontentment. God had provided for Adam and Eve far beyond all they needed, Genesis says God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And God withheld only one tree from Adam and Eve as a test of their obedience to him. And Satan used that one tree to tempt Eve by sowing seeds of discontent in her heart. He questioned the goodness of God to Eve, and that is exactly what discontentment always is, a questioning of the goodness of God. Now you see why our topic tonight is a theological topic, the topic of contentment. We become discontented when we forget the glory and the sufficiency and the wonder of our God. We forget his love, which he has proven to us. We forget his power. We forget his wisdom for our cares. When, I, when I'm, I'm a pastor of a church and I meet with people and one thing I like to say when someone comes to me and he's going through a hard time and he's really dismayed and, and, and I say this not to mock but to, but to help and I'll say, hypothetically, How would your attitude towards this situation change? Hypothetically, just go with me. If there was a sovereign, almighty, omnipotent, covenant keeping God who had pledged his love to you, hypothetically. (laughs) And of course, that is our God. That is the situation. That is the context in which the whole of our lives are lived. But we forget about him. And this is what Satan wants to do. And this is how the flesh works. It's a theological issue. We forget about God and he's removed from the equation of our lives and satisfaction shrinks and flees. Now this is especially true when we have false views and false expectations of God. And I think of this in light of the best selling book that Philip Yancey wrote a number of years ago, you may have read it, called Disappointment with God. And in that book, Yancey relates the sentiments of a number of Christians who had written to complain to him. They had trusted the Lord, but as they put it, God simply had let them down. One had suffered grief seeing his parents divorced, even though he'd prayed thousands of times for their reconciliation, and he trusted God for that, and they got divorced, and he was brokenhearted, and he was resentful and discontented with God. Another had lost a child and the pain that that would involve. Yet another just wasn't able to be happy, and God didn't seem to care or to be willing to help. And now these people wrote in to say they doubted God, they were discontented with the results of trusting in him. Now, I think that Yancey's response in that book, Disappointment with God, is actually very insightful. First, he points out that most of the things that came up that people were unhappy about, and they were suffering, they really were, and they were discontented with God about them, and yet he pointed out that they were all things that the Lord has not promised to give to us in this life. And frankly, as we're wrestling with these things, it's important to know whether or not God has pledged these things to us, whether or not this is part of the plan and the program for which we entered when we came to Jesus Christ. The truth is, God has not promised to spare his people from pain and sorrow in this present world. Quite to the contrary, in this world you'll have trouble, Jesus said. We, through many tribulations, must enter the kingdom of God. We are not made for this age of the world. We are made for the age of the world to come. This is the age under wrath because of sin. And we need to realize that God has not promised us a carefree life as his people in this age. Furthermore, Yancey pointed out that even when people receive the things that they wanted from God, They generally do not praise him or thank him. And and Yancey comes at the end of that book. I'm going to ruin the punchline for you, but it'll be good. Go read it anyway. Um, He says, at the end, he discovered dealing with all these people, wrestling, and and they they were hurt. They were disappointed. They were discontented. It's what they were looking for was, was what God could give them rather than God himself. Like Adam, they wanted the gifts but had become indifferent To the giver. God Himself and the glory of His person was lightly considered, and they were disappointed when God did not give them and do for them what they thought that He should do. Now, let me make a brief digression here because I think it's important. We're talking about discontentment and the deceitfulness by which Satan brought Adam and Eve to that point. And this is the Bible's teaching, that it is part of the nature of sin that it is deceitful, and we need to know that. Satan's attack on our first mother, our dear first mother Eve, was not an honest attack. It was not gentlemanly. It was not straightforward. It was a flank attack, and that's how he got around her defenses. And that is something that you will discover with the temptations to sin and to discontentment. Now, one of the biblical authors who deals with this issue, the the deceitfulness of sin, is the writer of the book of Hebrews. You may know that Hebrews is written in the mid-first century to a group of Jewish Christians who were being persecuted, and they're being tempted to renounce Christ to go back to Judaism. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. That's what he wants. Don't fall away. Don't have an evil, unbelieving heart, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And you see, we need to be wise as to this reality. When we're trying to make sense of our lives, when we're emotionally and spiritually trying to deal with the warp and woof of life in this fallen world, we need to realize that sin is not playing fair with my mind that it is of the nature of Satan and of sin to be deceitful. Now, the, the New Testament, the whole Bible, describes many things as deceitful. Romans 16, 18 speaks of false teachers who lead us astray by their deceit. You do know that you have to check what is taught versus the Scriptures. You cannot just download anything that's got a fish symbol on it and just put it into your mind. I'm sorry to say, one of the more dangerous places for the undiscerning Christian today is the Christian bookstore. Probably not yours in Albuquerque, but many that I've been into, (laughs) where there are falsehoods being taught on end displays. The beady in my books are in little corners tucked away. You know, you have to go hunting for that, but no, the end displays are... And you have to be worried about the deceitfulness of false teaching. By the way, when you're choosing a church, the the, the faithfulness of the teaching should be the very first matter on your mind because of the danger of deceitful false teaching. That's one thing the Bible describes this way. It gets worse, though, because the Bible uses this term deceitful about us. My problem is not merely that there are deceitful teachers out there, but my heart is deceitful. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Things seem right to me that are wrong. I, my, I, my mind and my flesh want things, and I'm sure they're going to be good, but they're bad. My heart is not a safe gate, and this is what I'm wrestling with. This is going on in the garden, is the deceitfulness of Satan and of sin and of false teaching. But now that, now that the fall has happened and that I have, were a corrupted race as the effect of the fall because of original sin, now I myself am part of the problem. I cannot trust my heart. My desires are not trustworthy. And then we have a personal deceiver and his servants, Satan at loose in the world, the devil, the Bible tells us the devil is a great deceiver, beguiling men and women into folly and unbelief as at the beginning. And then there's sin itself, which has as one of its main characteristics that sin is deceitful. Now, this is going to tell us a number of things that we need to be careful when dealing with the temptation to sin. Consider with me briefly. The situation of a man who is tempted to leave his wife and children for another woman because of his discontentment with his marital and family circumstances, and always the sin seems so alluring. The new woman is so much more attractive and wonderful than the plain old wife he's gotten tired of, And, and she admires him so. She plays to his ego, whereas his wife nags him, he says. It would be better despite, the yes, the technical sin, but he'll be better off. He'll be happier with the adulteress. People will understand. They'll get over it. The children will ultimately be glad for him. And it's all a great deceit. It's a, it's a deceit. And, and the fact that we feel this way, I was at a conference a few weeks ago with Rosaria Butterfield. Have you anybody really read Rosaria Butterfield's book? She was a, a lesbian feminist professor, and uh, uh, it was teaching against Christianity. She was converted. She's married to a Presbyterian minister now. And they said, We'd like you to come and speak at a conference with Rosaria Butterfield. I said, Absolutely. And she made the comment. She says, You know, the problem with sin is that it's pleasurable. And then she looked up she said, You know, if sin's not pleasurable, you're not doing it right. <laughs> And that's the problem. Our flesh is deceiving us and and, and we we, we think about it, but it's all a great deceit. This man's life will not be more wonderful. His problem with his marriage is not his wife, it's his heart. It's his idolatry, it's his self-love. His children will not get over it. They will bear the scars and brokenness all the days of their lives, and the Lord will use that, Lord willing, redemptively. Sin says it will be better, it will be happy. And my friends, it is a great deceit. And when we're dealing with the struggle, when we say, you know, I know I'm discontented, we need to, re- what we're saying is, I am deceived. And what I'm dealing with. The problem of discontentment and the source of my discontentment, what I need to be looking for is the place where I have been led astray by Satan, by the world, by my own flesh, by the lie that I wanted to believe. One of the prescriptions that the writer of Hebrews gives, therefore, is the importance of godly fellowship. This is why church membership is so important. This is why you need to come to church every. I always say you can only backslide so far in six days. So, yeah. so you, need to, you need to come into the company of the people of God and to hear the word of God preached and go, oh man, glad I came to church. And, uh, and to stand with the people. You need, you need Christian friends. In, and a husband and wife are to be a little church. And, and families are to be worshiping the Lord and speaking truth together. Because we're not like Satan isolated her. And that's how the the, the deceit worked and the discontentment comes. Spiritual fellowship is so essential to contentedness, satisfaction, because we are prone to being deceived. According to the writer of Hebrews, we must live in close spiritual fellowship, taking care, watching out, exhorting one another, calling out alongside every day, lest we should be deceived." Now, one of the books I hope you've read is the great allegory of the Christian life by John Bunyan called Pilgrim's Progress, and he shows the importance of living together so that we're not deceived, so that we can survive the attacks and the deceits in many places in that great allegory of the Christian life. And at one point, the hero Christian is joined by a man named Hopeful. That'd be a good companion to have, Hopeful. And Bunyan writes this, they entered a brotherly covenant and agreed to be companions. Isn't that wonderful? Let's enter into a brotherly covenant and be spiritual companions. There's a good word for a husband to say to his wife and parents to say to their children. I think of a wonderful description of the godly men of King Asa's generation as told in 2 Chronicles 15, 12. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord. The God of their fathers with all their hearts and all their souls. My my favorite instance of this is in 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, when David is in the desert of Ziph. I don't know a lot about the desert of Ziph, but it doesn't sound very fun. (laughs) And David's struggling and he's alone and and life's coming down on him and Jonathan goes to him. You know, we got to be together. And the scripture says he strengthened David's hand in God. We need to be doing that one for another in our struggle with sin and deception and discontentment, encouraging one another as to the sufficiency, the glory, the faithfulness of the God we know and serve and the way he has proved these things to us in Jesus Christ. What difference would it make, brother? What difference would it make Rick when you're struggling with deception if you knew that God was faithful? He'd proved his faithfulness on the cross of Jesus Christ. He loved you enough that he sent his son to die for you and he is certain to secure to the end that which he began in Jesus Christ. It would make a big difference. And we need the covenant to be satisfied in that. Well, Let me just give you some examples from uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and Hopeful are journeying together and soon they came across another traveler whose name was by Ends from the town of Fair Speech. And they pooled their discernment and they realized this was not the person they wanted to hang out with. They decided that they would avoid Mr. Ends from the town of Fair Speech. Good move. Next they encountered a group led by a man named Mr. Hold the World. And he was trying to tempt them into dishonest gain and he was arguing about the reasons for it. But together they were able to reprove him. Next came Demas, who wanted them to depart from the way because he loved the world. And and Hopeful was tempted. He was tired. We get tired. He wanted to go back, but Christian warned him. I have heard of this place he's leading us to. The treasure is a snare to those that seek it. Let us not go a step forward. And they kept on their way towards the celestial city. Next they came to Doubting Castle, and this time it was Christian who came, and he fell into doubt, and he was in that terrible dungeon, but hopeful kept his faith, and together they found the key. What was the name of the key in Doubting Castle? The key of promise. The promises of God, and it let them out of castle despair. See, this is the kind of help we're to be giving one another, lest we should be deceived. And fall into discontentment with God and thereby to sin. Well, Genesis 3 not only shows us how contentment was lost in the fall into sin and in the wiles of the devil, it also tells us what else is lost together with contentment. When we lose our contentment with God and turn away from Him, we lose more than our satisfaction. And the first of them is that we lose our communion with God. We see this in their immediate response and their new awareness in sin. Verse seven, uh, verse 6, Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate, and their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. You see, immediately they realized the need to cover themselves before the presence of the holy God. They had rebelled against God. They had dishonored him. They had broken his law. And they realized, they were aware of it existentially, that they could no longer stand before him. Now, I, I, I have an experience of this whenever I look in my rearview mirror and I see a police car, <laughs> Right? And it shames me, here he is calling me the holy man, well, I don't look so holy when my palms are sweating because there's was a cop in my rearview mirror, rear, rear, and I'm not even doing, he, my, my, my daughter says, Dad, you're not doing anything wrong, but I have. <laughs> <laughs> and it just makes me uncomfortable that that, that person, so I, you know, you change the lanes, you slow down, you let him go, he's gone. <laughs> and this is how the unbeliever feels about God. This is why the man or woman of the world doesn't want the Bible. If they hit the Christian radio station, they change it with laser speed. This is why they resent biblical teaching. Because they know that their sin has accused them in the presence of a holy God. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, the, the tragedy of the situation in this text ought to reduce us to tears. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking among the, in the garden in the cool of the days. What a, what a beautiful statement that is. And they ran from it. The, the trees that had been the setting for their communion and beauty and fullness and glory, now it was just camouflage to them. But of course it's camouflage, it doesn't work. And God calls out to them, where are you? Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The sin that began with deceit led to discontentment has now made man oppose and flee from the knowledge of God and the presence of him. And so it is for the sinner today. Maybe it's true with you. If you don't like to have people talk about Jesus or the reading of the Bible, understand that the sin into which you have been tempted, and we all have been tempted, we all have entered into, apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it's, it not only steals our satisfaction, it ruins our communion with our maker, the God of love. We feel naked before him and we resent him. And the result is restlessness discontentment. Now the problem is that sin has not only, however, caused us to lose our communion with God, it has also ruined our communion with one another. And then briefly, you see it here, they immediately begin accusing one another. I always say uh, Adam is the first, two, first two-fisted blame shifter. The woman you gave me, that's the problem. How many times have men prayed that? You're responsible for giving me her, and, and it's sin. It's, it's a disgrace to man. And the woman, she's blaming God about man and about Satan. And so we, we lose our communion with God. We lose our ability to commune with one another. What a ruin, misery, has, and restlessness has come from the discontentment that leads us to sin. Look at verse 16. Here's God's curse on the woman. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth your children. Now especially this, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. How's that for a psychologically accurate depiction of marital problems in sin? No, really. Really? The woman's going to obsessively try to control the relationship. The man's going to resent it, pull away, and respond with conflict. There is 98, 99, almost 100% of every marital counseling I've dealt with because sin has this effect. It ruins our relationships, and God's curse is upon it. We are not able to enjoy life. And verse 16 I will surely multiply. Your pain and childbearing. And so the distinctively feminine act of of childbearing becomes a pain and burden to her. And then the man too, the, the distinctively masculine desire for achievement in the workplace is cursed with frustration and futility. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow will you eat of your bread." Frustration and futility are marked in the lack of satisfaction that God has ordained for sin. We lose our communion with Him. We lose our communion with one another. We, use, we lose our enjoyment of life. Uh, just the other day, I saw an article about the world's most exclusive and luxurious address. It is the 640 feet long, 12 story cruise ship, The World which serves as the permanent residence for 200 wealthy, people from 19 different countries you buy a luxury apartment or condo on the world and this luxury ship spends all of its time going from one port to another and if you go there you see what they are you know they're in Swedish and Norwegian fjords and then they're in some Asian port and then they're in Venice and all their time is spent with these rich affluent you know uh, uh, cultivated people in this luxurious setting floating from one idyllic place To another. Uh, Let me me quote from its brochure. Since our launch in 2002, the world has continuously circumnavigated the globe, spending extensive time in the most exotic and well traveled ports, allowing us, the residents, to wake up in a new destination every few days, exploring with depth we had never thought possible before. Now, I want to be honest. I read that and I thought that is very cool. I mean, let's be honest. Wow! <laughs> I mean that. I mean, really, that, thats like the pinnacle of of of, of experience of, of of the things the world has to offer. But yet, but I, and Rick, flesh, don't deceive me. And I said, I'm going to bet that if I do a Google search on the world, I'm going to find that they're not getting along. And they're not happy, even in this incredibly idyllic, you know, all millionaires, all living in lavish settings, going from one exotic port to another, doing nothing but feeding themselves with great experiences. And so I googled the world conflict, and it was filled with articles. It turns out that they are not getting along on the world. (laughs) There's strife between the owners and the renters. There's strife between the residents and management. In fact, the residents are trying to buy out right now. The last negotiated price was $72 million for the remaining condos, and this is going on. Now, how can there be unhappiness and strife and lack of contentment on, frankly, I think one of the world's most brilliant schemes for luxury and entertainment? Because without God, man cannot be content we were made for him you know when he took his fingers you know everything else god creates it's by divine fiat let there be light light you know let there be land creatures let there be sea creatures let there be bird creatures when it comes to you and me it's his own fingers And a personal investment. And we were designed for a relationship with our Creator, and He made us face to face. You know how the great ironic blessing of number six the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make His face to shine upon you. We are so designed, believer and unbeliever alike, that we can only be whole, we can only be integrated in the face of our loving God, in communion with Him in covenant with him. And there is no scheme. There is no discipline. There is no technique. There are no circumstances that can replace God, our maker, our loving, sovereign covenant Lord in our hearts. I think it's important for us to realize that the situation in Genesis 3 of restlessness and and, and broken communion and unhappiness and frustration. Aren't you frustrated by weeds and rust? And you no know, matter how hard you work, it breaks that world in which we live. That that is not merely the natural result of sin. It is also God's deliberate curse upon the fallen race. I mentioned the curse on the woman in verse 16. And then on the man in verses 17 and 19. Those are... Those are Cursed circumstances that did not immediately happen. They did not naturally follow from the sin. But God declared the curse. Cursed are these things, he said. Now here's the question. Wasn't it bad enough already? Without God making it impossible? Honestly, he's talking about marital strife here. He injects into it. We talk about the divorce rate being 60%, whatever number they give. Outside of Christ, I'm surprised it's not 100%. frankly because we don't know how to love. We don't know how to be whole with ourselves, much less be be satisfied with another person. And and here's how I like to put it. What God has done in the fall is he, he has injected a poison into human society and human life for which he alone is the antidote. Why? Because he is the Lord. Because he is God. Because he is the creator. It is for the display of his glory. We were made to know him. Now, what did Jesus say? Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is right. And this is the purpose. This is how the, the, the universe comes together. This is how creation works. And God is so determined. And now, this is playing out in our lives in so many ways. Why did God give me this trial? Have you considered that he wants you? He wants you to be satisfied with him. He wants you to believe what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else is going to come together. All these other things will be given to you as well. God is not willing because of his love. Yes, because of his sovereign rights. But because of his love for his creation. For his people, he is not willing that it would work without us. Now you see, here's the problem that Richard Dawkins is up against when he writes the God delusion. And here's the problem that the the late Christopher Hitchens, when he writes God is not good because the thesis of this rejuvenated atheistic movement in America today is if we can only get rid of God, we can be happy. That's what's being said. That's what's being sold. I just saw somebody the other day who said we should not allow people to be religious because it's messing everybody, everything up. If we get rid of the idea of God, then it will all come together. the, The problem is that he will not go away. Because he is God and he's not a God that we made. He's the true God and he's the living God and he will not abandon the work of his hands. He will not share his glory with another. And so you have today, and and, and we know this experientially, the dreadful situation of Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. It says, the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. What's he saying? He's saying, you know, the sea, why isn't the sea ever at peace? Why is it always churning? Why is it always restless? Why is it never satisfied? Because it's got two competing magnetic forces. And so it is for the sinner. He has a magnetic force of sin and of the flesh and of the world. But the problem is there's another magnetic force, like the moon upon the sea, that will not go away, and it, doesn't, it pulls it back. And there's a churning back and forth. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is why marriage will not make you happy. You can only be happy in marriage if you're happy outside of marriage. Contented in God now marriage is God 's provision. I'm, you, find, you have a hard time finding a more pro-marriage guy than me. I love to do marriages, and uh, uh, I think six of our last seven marriages, both the bride and groom were, grew up in our church. that makes everybody happy in the church. Uh, It's not necessary, but we're pro-marriage and and that's God's provision. And yet if I need that person to make me happy and to complete me and to give me satisfaction, I have made that person an idol and the one thing I cannot do is love them. I cannot love my wife if my sufficiency is in her rather than my sufficiency is in God. And so it is with our workplace. You do know that professional achievement is not going to satisfy you when you get there. I mean, just go to any Barnes and Nobles in the, in the book section and go to the biographies of business titans, and they, they write them after they succeeded. And every single time, I remember Lee Iacocca. Does anybody remember Lee Iacocca? It's just how old I am. He was the guy in the 70s who saved Chrysler, and he, and he wrote this book about his climbing to the top and his six marriages, or whatever number it was. And you know, he talks about one time the The guy who won the sales award got a brass key to the the executive bathroom, and he casually says, I think I lost my fourth wife over that key. Oh. And at the end of the book, where he chronicles a life given to the idolatry of success, I I quote here, he says, Take it from me, I've been there, fame and fortune are for the birds. It's true, I'm glad he said it, but I want to weep because it's a man who spent his whole life pursuing it. But what are we pursuing? Look, we should want to do good. We should, we should be ambitious for the usefulness of our lives, but the idolatry of achievement and success will leave us unsatisfied. We were not designed for them, much less pleasure, wealth, and those things. I saw Jack Welsh, the, uh, the chairman of GM a few years or GE a few years ago, and they said he's retiring. They said, Jack, you're wealthy, you're fabulously successful, you're in retirement, what's with your life? And he said, I, I've made this resolution that henceforth no glass of wine that costs less than $1,000 will ever pass my lips. Here's a man made to know God, to bear the image of God, to be a participant in the kingdom of God. You know, when David says in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, he was speaking of every living human creature on this earth. Well, I need to wrap it up, and I want to do so by looking ahead to Genesis 32. You don't have to turn there, but I want to tell the story of Jacob as he's coming home. Uh, Jacob, the the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the patriarch, his name meant grasper. And he was the younger of two twin boys, and he had his hand on his brother Esau's heel, and the name Jacob Jacob meant grasper. And that's how he lived his whole life. He would have been a great American. Uh, you know, he was looking out for number one. And he was, he's, I've got a strategy, I've got a plan, and I'm going to get it. And he wanted the covenant promise of his father. So together with his mother, they plotted against his brother Esau, and their scheme worked, and he, he grasped the covenant promise. He didn't grasp the blessing of it. And his brother hates him, and his brother's strong, so he has to flee into exile. Off he goes to his un- uncle Laban's house, and he marries his two daughters, Leah and Rachel. There's a whole story there. And, and he, he, he wants wealth and, and, and riches and, and, and to be a man of significance, so he grasps them. He tricks his uncle Laban, and he lays hold of his flock and his riches, but the bad news is he has to flee. Grasping in a world of sin does not bring satisfaction. It it gives us the things we're looking for, but not what we're looking for from the things. And so there's Jacob in Genesis 32. He has no place to go. He's going back to the lands of his father. And a a scout comes back and says to him, Esau is coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. Uh Uh-oh. Well, Jacob's trying to scheme, he's trying to grasp it, he wants a plan for how to deal with this new problem, and he decides he's going to appease his brother Esau with a series of gifts. First, he sends forward 200 female goats that he had previously grasped, and he sends them as a present, as an offering to Esau. But then he wonders, what if that is not enough? So he sends another servant with 20 male goats. I'm just reading the Bible here. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. Perhaps he will accept me. Genesis 32, 20. He's got a strategy, a plan that he thinks is going to succeed. But he's not sure of it either. So he sends more of his flocks as gifts. And then more and still more. Altogether, he sends to Esau 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. And then he runs out of animals, so he starts sending wives and sons, and first Leah he doesn't really like her anyway, so he sends her and her sons, it's just true. And uh, sorry. And then he he's, even Rachel, who he loves, but look, he's, he's, off she goes with her sons. And then there he is alone, alone at the river, on the other side is that which he fears. I think if Jacob had known the old hymn, he could have sung it in the darkness of the river, I surrender all, all the goats, all the sheep, all the camel, all the cows, the bulls, the donkeys, wives, and children, but Jacob had not surrendered himself. He had not surrendered himself, and so in his grace, the Lord came and he wrestled with him. We're thinking, our conference is wrestling with contentment, and you know, it is God who wrestles with us. In the matter of contentment. And he came to Jacob, and you have this beautiful scene. It's a, it's a fascinating account, but the key is when Jacob, who all his life, he'd been reaching his hands out for the things he wanted, he'd been grasping for them, and he finally lets them all go, and he puts his hands onto God. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that was his conversion. He was a new man. He had surrendered himself to God. He says, Give me yourself, God. And then I'll be sufficient. Then I'll be contented. Is God wrestling with you? You see, as we this weekend are wrestling with the matter of contentment, might it be that it is God who's brought us here? Because he wants us to say, look, they're fine things, the the, the camels and the donkeys and the goats and 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 the things in our lives, that we value them. But do we value him supremely? Do we hold the communion cup in our hands in the Lord's Supper and say, Lord, if I have this, if Jesus died for me so that I am a child of God, I have everything I need. Together with him, I have everything. God is wrestling with us. Well, here's the question. Can we come back to God when we failed, when we have sinned? And the answer is found at the end of Genesis 3. Because God, too, is discontented. He's discontented with Satan's victory. He's discontented that some of his a lot the, the idea that some of his elect should be lost. He's discontented that his plan should fail and Satan should win. And so God, in his discontentment over the failure of his people in sin, he sends his son Jesus to be the victor over sin. You have one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Genesis 321. The gospel message, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Penal substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness. That the son of God has died for my sins. He's paid the penalty out of love for me because of the love of the father for me. And on the cross, he bore my penalty. The guilt and the shame have been taken away and he's clothed me in his perfect righteousness and now I can stand before God. And my friends, when we do, through faith in Jesus, so grateful for the grace that restores us to contentment with God, well, then we can sing the words that Jacob should have been singing. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel thy Holy Spirit. Truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. And we will get everything in him. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice to know that your love is not content until your people have been claimed and have been secured in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and have been brought before you. And Lord, we're still in this life. We still need you working in us and for us. But Father, how great it is to know that you are resolved, that our lives are going to end with us being filled with all the fullness of God, and that we will see your face, and we will be like him. Father, let us even now then imbibe of your own contentment with your glory, and bless your word these sessions to that effect, that you might have the praise of our lives, and we might be blessed to find our satisfaction and contentment in you.